You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Jake? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for having us on today. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for uh, setting some time aside today to put this one together. Um, we've been working with you on a few things this this year and it's been pretty cool i think uh it probably started maybe through phil roy he's been our stillwater guru for a while and i know he's uh been connected with you guys but i think you're all over the place uh not just phil but around the country mfc is one of the big companies out there that's doing some good stuff and fly patterns and all that so we're gonna we're gonna dig into the history of mfc and we're gonna talk about that we're gonna talk about maybe some high level uh top patterns you know you guys use but let's take it back to you really quick fly fishing, how'd you get into it? And then how did uh, MFC come to be for you? I, I love that question, Dave. Um, fly fishing for me was kind of a byproduct uh, of another business I was in. When I was, I should say, when I was in, in high school, uh, my mother actually bought a guide trip for my brothers and my dad and I. And that was uh, in Boulder, Colorado, probably in like 97, 98, something like that. And so we all went fishing once, had a great time, and I, I didn't do a lot with it um, until I was, you know, about midway through college in Fort Collins, got all my gear, you know, put 1500 bucks on a credit card that I couldn't afford <laughs> the payments on. Uh, you know, I mean, everything. I needed the fly box, the rod, real waders, I mean, everything I needed. And my box at that time consisted of like stimulators, parachute atoms, Elkhair, Caddis, and Pheasant Tails. Those are literally the only four flies I fished for like two years, which was hilarious. Um and I ended up, uh, you know, the, the short stroke of it is I ended up, you know, in the horse business, training horses uh, all over the West for, you know, through college and, and after college. And I landed on a ranch in Kansas, you know, fishing in my free time. But in Kansas, you got to drive. And there was a gentleman uh, that was the husband of the of the ranch, the, the gal that owned the ranch. His name was Pat Smith. Phenomenal guy. Goes way back in the outdoor industry. And I didn't know that he was at all connected with the, with this ranch. So we became friends and, and I realized that he was a writer and wrote fishing shows, uh, you know, from the 1960s, you know, through the early 2000s. And we became friends and uh, he took me to the Henry's Fork in probably 2002, something like that. And it was kind of over at that point. So I ended up going back to the ranch after a four day trip there and, uh, you know, fishing with him. And decided to a change of life, change of direction, and that was the beginning of my time. So from there, uh, you know, fished a few years, worked odd jobs around around Island Park, and then ended up becoming a guide in that area and guided between there Yellowstone. So basically, the Henry's Fork, you know, from Rexburg up to the border of Montana, 
and then uh, the Madison Drainage, Yellowstone Park, and then I spent five years in Tierra del Fuego chasing sea run browns uh, with clients as well, which was awesome. So after whatever that was, 10, 11 years of, of guiding between those few places, ended up with Montana Fly Cup. Wow. There you go. So that's, uh, yeah, I didn't realize the extent of that. That's really cool. So in, in the Henry's Fork in that area, which we've been talking a lot about, in fact, the giveaway that we have going uh, that just launched today is actually for uh, the Stillwater School we're doing with uh, with Phil Roy and uh, and back to that area, right? Because the lake fishing is pretty awesome there. Did you hit lakes much when you were out there? Or was it mostly streams? No, I, I fished both. And it admittedly, you know, I mean, the further back you go in time, I think we, we didn't nymph with, you know, I mean, 15, 20, 25 years ago, you know, we weren't nymphing with extremely long leaders and as near split shot as we should have. And we were using... Oh, what am I? Yarn ball indicators and carrying combs and float. So this was before the Euro. Was this before the Euro craze and popularity? Oh my gosh. I mean, we're, yeah, we're talking 15 years before that. Uh, if you look at 2023 now, the Euro craze probably hit, you know, our shores anyway, um, six, seven, eight years ago and heavily four and five years ago um, as that kind of grew in popularity from east to west and from the northwest into the into the western states. But the point of that, when you ask about fishing lakes, right? There were always some old guys fishing the lakes, uh, but it wasn't nearly as mainstream in the outfitting world to fish stillwaters while fly fishing. So, you know, again, going back to that nymphing thing, you know, we were throwing dry flies and then dry droppers, and then we were nymphing with these yarn balls. And then we were going deeper and adding weight and catching fish we hadn't been catching in previous years. And then the, you know, the balloons came out. So we littered the banks with broke rubber balloons, then the thingamabobber and then the airlock. So, you know, the, the progression, well, along with that progression that we saw in specifically subsurface fishing, we were also, there were people branching out, you know, into more stillwater fishing and realizing that we could catch, you know, as many or more fish, equal size, if not bigger, and fewer people on the water. So uh, to your earlier question, that piqued my interest pretty big. There was two or three of us that were kind of cruising around with little motorboats, you know, uh, trying to find stillwater game. And as we started to learn this, yeah, we brought our clients out there and had a ball with it. So I don't know, Dave, if it was as much for the customer's experience or our own, because to sit on the on the back of a little, you know, twenty five horse John boat and cruise around in flip flops and a coffee <laughs> mug rowing, you know, nine miles of the river was a really, really nice change of pace. And then over time, we learned how to catch fish a little better in in, in those lakes. Um, I did quite a bit of that. I mean, in that area, you have a lot of great lakes. The, the three that are, that are obviously on the tip of our tongues would be Henry's Lake, then you have Hebgen Lake, and then you have Quake Lake. And then if you go north, you know, from there, south from there, there's obviously more stillwater opportunities, but those were the the main ones of that region. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we it's been pretty fun setting up this because we've got the two. We're kind of doing the Euro School, which is going to be down with Pete down to the, um, yeah, we're fishing hopefully the South Fork and the Henry's Fork, and then we're going to go up a little bit north for Henry's Lake. And that's going to be cool too, because I think we got a couple of great lakes and I've heard about the Henry's Fork or the Henry's Lake being such a just monster fish, but it's, you got to work. It's almost like you're steelhead fishing or something like that. Is that kind of what the Henry's Lake, do you remember that? Is it pretty tough catching? You know, it depends on the year and, you know, kind of the state of the fishery, you know, from, from year to year. But once you, um, if your steelhead fishing is as good as my Henry's Lake fishing, I would love to go steelheading with you. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Maybe not. Yeah. Right. No, I, I think you guys will have fun. And especially with, with Phil and his team, you won't only be limited to stripping flies. 
at Henry's Lake lends itself uh, as an unbelievable leech lake and stripped fly lake, uh, but it also fishes very well, you know, under under indicators. So moving around the lake, finding different depths, water temperatures. Um, you, you guys, what, when you find them, you'll find more than one. Right, that's awesome. Yeah, and this year we actually have an ambassador, uh, Darren Huntsman, is going to be on. He is kind of more of the stripping, and he does he fishes. He's from that area, so we're going to have uh, Phil and Darren on, and then um, and like we said, if uh, Right now at wetflyswing.com slash Stillwater School is the best place if uh, if you want to check anybody listening now to get a slot because we're going to have a, a group of people going over there and that's the best chance to, to join. So um, so this is great. All right, Jake. So I think this is off to a good start here. I want to take us back real quick to MFC, more of the history, because before we jump into it, I want to, get, I want to catch that because I don't know the history. Can you share that? Do you know a little bit about how it started? and Or were you there at the start? I don't even know how it originally got started. No, 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 that's great. I'm happy to, to the best of my ability. I was not here when the company was founded in 1998. Uh, Adam Trina from Missoula, I, he was born and raised in uh, in New York State, but at a young age came to Missoula uh, and ended up going to college in Missoula. And while guiding, I believe had some conversations with some of his fishing customers on what he really wanted to do. And, and his answer was, I really would like to have a fly company. He had been tying flies from a very young age, was a very good fly tire, and wanted to bring you know that commercially tied option to uh, to the market. At that time, there were only a couple you know commercially tied fly companies yeah. out there. So no, it started in a drift boat in Missoula in, in 97, 98. First catalog was in 98. And it was you know owned and operated and managed by Adam uh, for years. So I came on in 2012. Yeah, spring of 2012. So whatever that is, like 14, 15 years when I got here, there was a lot of really cool opportunity and good energy to expand the brand, grow the program. But looking back at what Adam had done over that 14 years was amazing. I mean, I've seen his first catalog. It was like, you know, whatever it was, six pages, eight pages of basic old dry flies. And to see what we are now from his vision back then was really, really cool. But I think the the most important part of MFC and what it was then, and probably as much or even more so what it is now, is it's a company that's always been run, not only founded, but also operated on a daily basis by a group of us um, that have you know pretty thick roots in the industry. So whether it was you know operating, managing a fly shop, or you know outfitting, guiding, uh, teaching, all of us have a background there before we came to the business versus uh, you know versus vice versa. And, and we we take that very seriously, and we operate with that experience very humbly as well, because not everyone knows everything. And experience, you know, from now and in the past is not necessarily the experience that will bring us to the future. So, uh, it's a good group of guys, right? We came out of guide boats, and we all have the mindset that uh, we're going to continue to learn not only from each other, but from every other generation moving forward that spends a lot of time on the water. Before we get rolling here today, let's hear from our sponsor. Bear Vault has the perfect solution to keep your provisions secure while heading into the backcountry this season. Bear Vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. Proper food storage is one key to an epic trip in the backcountry. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash bear vault to check out this must-have solution for the outdoors now. You support this podcast and your safety this season by clicking through that link right now. 
And so MFC, since, like you said, the first 14 years, so was Adam there solely? Was it just like a one-man show, or did he have a, a team? Did he build a team as he went? He built a team as he went, and I wish I could. I couldn't speak to exactly how that was the first year or two, but I know he had uh, two or three people in a warehouse. He had a gal up front in the office, you know, shipping, uh, you know, taking phone calls, shipping orders. He's had a couple partners over the years, no doubt, that, you know, that helped him a lot. He spent a lot of time in Asia. Something really, really important that I'd like to mention about Montana Fly is we don't subcontract out our, our fly program. So, meaning we don't order flies as a front-facing brand. We don't order the, our flies to be built by a fly factory that's not connected to us or that, that we don't own. So, Adam, when he built the brand also started his own fly factory from the ground up. And that's an unbelievable, an unbelievable feat, in my opinion, knowing the business now, how hard that is. The barrier to entry is pretty difficult. But we do own and operate and always have our own production. So we control the materials going into our factory, the quality going through and coming out of our factory, the livelihoods and quality of life of our employees overseas you know, everything is, is directly owned and operated by us. And that's been like that since day one. Right. Right. Amazing. So, and so that's probably, I was going to ask, you know, what was the you know, reason for the success, you know, because there's a few companies out there that are, I think at a higher level and, uh, you know, it seems like you guys are one of them, but that's probably it. Just having all, you know, having the, not only owning the company, but having your finger on the pulse to know, like when something happens, you could tweak and switch things. Is that kind of being a little nimble? Like maybe you describe that. Is that true? And then what do you think is the reason the last 13 years you guys have been successful and grown this thing? I think a number of things. Um, owning and operating the factory does, and you use the word nimble, uh, and that's probably the best word to use. Um, it does allow us to make changes quickly and to be in communication with our awesome group of people overseas. We, we operate in Cambodia, by the way. Um, so when I say you know overseas, I'll say Cambodia. The company was founded in uh, his first factory was in Costa Rica, but he was not there for long and moved quickly to Thailand, probably around 2000 and to 2003 would be my best guess. So it was only in Costa Rica for a few years, then moved to Thailand. Uh, and as you guys probably know, commercial flies have been being tied around the city of Chiang Mai, Thailand since 1974. So that's uh, that's really kind of a multi-generation uh, industry in Thailand. And Adam had brought the company there early in its stages. And we were there for quite a long time, probably through about 2013-ish. We started to make a move to Cambodia just for kind of a fresh group of people that wanted the Thai flies. And we were able to go to a place where no one else was operating and find a, you know, a fair number of people that wanted to learn how to tie flies. And we are now specific uh, or only in Cambodia. So started in, in Costa Rica, moved to Thailand, was in Thailand for a solid, you know, whatever that is, 15 years, 10, 15 years, and then moved to Cambodia. So I think that ability to be nimble, the ability to find the right people when we need to know the people, get to know our, our team, keep them excited about what we're doing, keeps the quality of the product up on that side, right? Then when we see issues on this side, we can tweak, change, and maneuver quickly for sure. So I think that's a part of the brand success. And another part is, to me, is easier to think and feel, but harder to put into words. We do believe that what we're doing is fun and pretty cool. And we strive to make you know what we do better every day. But I think the fact that we don't rest on the laurels of 
you know, what Montana fly either was, is, or could be, we don't think of it in those terms. We don't think of ourselves as a big brand in the fly space or in the fishing space. We just sit here and play with flies and talk flies and gear and fly boxes and what could be done better, what could be done different. And then we fish in our, you know, in a lot in our free time. So when we think about our business, we think about, are we taking care of our dealers? Are we tying the best flies we can? And when anything like that comes up where we're not, right, we're making those tweaks and changes. So I think being product centric, uh, very customer dealer centric of what our purpose is in this world has helped us stay, you know, in a sense, very humble to just build good products, just make good flies and make it a, a fair value for our dealers as well. So I think all of those things, um, we just enjoy what we do and try to make sure that what we're doing is working for the buyers of our products. So our fly shops and partners and dealers, right? We listen to what's working and what's not and try to make those changes. Right on. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. You just answered my next question, which was going to be, you know, how do you choose the flies you put in there? Because you've got a probably a limited number of SKUs or you probably adjust that based on what's selling. But is that how it works? You go to your fly shops and all your partner, your dealers and say, hey, you know, what do we need to put in here? Or do you guys have a whole different process of like choosing which flies go up there online and out there? No, yeah, it's, it's all of the above. Everything you mentioned plus some. So we have, uh, again, internally, we all tie flies, right? So there are definitely patterns that we spin together in our minds and or vices here in Montana as a group. We have an unbelievable, and let me say this, the most important part of what we do is our contract design team, more importantly than what we do in-house. So our signature fly tire, signature fly designers have been fantastic to work with over the years and have been great partners to us. So we reach out to those guys, you know, obviously uh, regularly and if nothing else, you know, uh, annually talking about flies, what they're tying, what they're fishing, you know, where we see some need for growth in our assortment of flies in our catalog. And we work with those guys an ungodly amount to make sure that we're using that resource as much as we can. They have a place for their new flies and designs. That works really well. So we basically take, um, people will send us, uh, you know, samples of flies uh, throughout the year. And then towards the end of the summer, early fall, we all take a solid look at, uh, at the flies we've received. And we work with the, with the folks that, that sent them to us to, you know, say, yeah, we think this fits or we'd like to see some tweaks and changes, but we love the idea. You know, that's a huge part of it. Then our internal design work is definitely a part of it. And then we have a great group of sales reps that travel that, you know, all territories across the country that pull information from the dealers, right? What would you guys like to see that we're missing uh, or tweaks and changes to existing products that you would like to see? So again, typical of me, a wordy response. That's good. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, we have a a variety of ways that we seek out and receive patterns to go into the book. And it's sales reps, it's fly shops, it's our design team, uh, as well as, you know, us in-house looking at these things. That's cool. So it sounds like, yeah, it's a little bit of everything. And then I always think like Phil Roy, I think he's one of your kind of designers, right? Talk about that. I mean, Phil, he's been there a while. Do you know... Well, first, is he, and then how does that work like with his flies? Because he's kind of the Stillwater guru. Do you guys meet with him once a year and just chat about maybe tweaks or new flies that he's working on? We do. We do. Phil's fantastic. And, and Phil and I go back as friends to the time that, that uh, we were first introduced to each other uh, at Montana Fly. And if and when Phil listens to this, I want him to truly know 
that I'm no longer drinking Old Crow from the plastic <laughs> bottle. <laughs> All right. And we have graduated to a little better, uh, a little better quality bourbon in the glass bottle. There but uh, Phil's great. He stays on me, you know, hot and heavy as far as you know, what he's up to, you know, new patterns, tweaks in colors and sizes, tweaks in hooks. He and Brian Chan, you know, have been friends for years. And those guys are kind of scientific about how they look at their flies. They don't guess what will work. They're trying to solve a problem, right? They see something at some depth in some specific time, right? Some hatch or uh, a window of a hatch that they don't have a fly for. And they'll see fish feeding and not on what they're using and say, all right, they're feeding on some stage of this aquatic insect. Let's go after that. And that's that's how they've designed flies, which is really fun because they don't just whip something together and say, hey, I tried this and it worked. You know, They talk about why they made it and why it works and at what depth it works or at what speed it works. So they're super fun to work with. And yes, Phil is uh, Phil is in touch very regularly. He's a great, great partner. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And we'll give a shout out to Phil. Uh, Phil's the Littoral Zone podcast that he's working with us on the network here. And it's been pretty awesome to go deeper into the Stillwater stuff with him. So, well, let, let's hear about, so you have a ton of flies. I mean, we could probably talk the rest of the time here about all the flies, but I'm curious on a couple other things that we see out there. Like we're doing this giveaway event with you guys and it's always like putting out something to give away and we're giving away a box of flies. And, and you also see your big box. Talk about your your fly boxes you guys use. Is there some uh, something unique about those? I know you have maybe some artist kind of designs, but talk about what you know folks would get if they wanted to get some cool fly box. Is that something you focus on? Yeah, yeah, you bet, you bet. Um, the box you're talking about, the, the quote unquote, the big box that we called the boat box. And that was designed in... 2011, 10 and 11, and then came to market in 2012. And we've had a few iterations of it since. But so that box has been, you know, being sold by MFC for over whatever that is, 11, 12 years, 11 years now. Um, great fly box. It was built to be kind of the, the box that every guide would want to have in the boat. It's made from a super durable ABS plastic, um, you know, stainless steel hinge pins. It just was meant to be a burly box that could hold more flies than any fly box that had been built up to its time. Right. And that's the cool thing about the boat box. The reason why it's so cool is that, you know, you got all these boxes, you know, a lot of us have whatever tens, but whatever hundreds of boxes, but this is one box. And that's cool thing. Like if you're on a boat, have this big boat box, you could have like all your flies for that day or that whatever trip in this one box. Is that kind of the idea on the boat box where you just have it all in one? Absolutely. Yeah. You're right. You're going to take one boat box or two with you. And if you can't fit everything you need in the two of those boxes, right, we're probably doing something wrong. Um, you throw the the center leaf inside of it and you basically have four different sections of eight by 11, eight by 10, you know, foam to be able to load flies up. So you have streamers on two of those things. You put a few hundred dries on a third side, you know, and five or 800 nymphs on a fourth side. You know, you have nymphs, dries, and streamers you know, for, for a month, for whatever. And then oftentimes we'll have, you know, guys will have a second box or some guys have 10 or 15 of these things, but, um, you know, having one to load your saltwater flies in, obviously those flies are substantially bigger. So they're great for, they're great to throw on a, you know, on a flat skiff, you throw it under your seat and you have, you know, hundreds of, of your permit bonefish tarpon, you know, inshore off, you know, yeah, I mean, anything you need to bring, you got, you got room for it. So that was the idea of the box and it has held true to that time. Now beyond the boat box, we are 
solving some problems that we that we found. We, the boat box was outstanding. When you want to throw it in a boat, throw it in the back of the truck. But the traveling angler, you know, wants to tie everything up into one waterproof gear bag. So um, we bought or acquired Plan D fly boxes about a year ago. And what we liked about that brand was it is truly the burliest fly box you've ever seen as far as construction. And we were told they were tough, the Plan D boxes. So we decided to run over one with a half ton Chevy. And the rear wheels didn't break the box. So we backed up farther and ran over it with the front of the truck, of course, under where the engine sits. And it also did not crush the box. <laughs> so we were super pumped on this idea and thought, all right, we can expand this. These are great quality boxes with some really cool and innovative designs. But what is that part of the market we haven't quite hit yet? And it's the larger fly box for the daily backpacker and or the traveling angler that would like to tie these things into a gear bag. So it's going to be a little smaller than the boat box, a little bigger than the average box on the market. And that'll be the the next line of plan D's that are, that are currently in development. That's it. Cool. So you got something coming. That was, was I wanted to ask you too, because I know your, your website as we're speaking is under construction, but um, as soon as that's fixed, uh, well, let's just say that as soon as that's all updated and, and ready to roll, what would people expect to see on that side? Is that more geared towards um, you know consumers or more the industry folks, shops and things like that? Yeah, this that's a new question for us to answer because it's we've always talked about uh, a kind of rebirth of our website, but what to expect out of it is definitely the key. We're very business to business or wholesale specific and definitely dealer centric. So we currently don't sell our products direct to the consumer. Although we would love to be able to reach more people in some ways, you could say at the time of, of visiting a website and seeing something, but we believe the relationship with you know independent owned retail, um, you know the fly fishing pro shop, is an unbelievably important tool in in our world for the consumer to be able to find not only the products they need, but the education that they need to pick those products, how to use them, when to use them, and so forth. So our website, to your question will be a consumer-facing site that we really hope to be a landing page um, that envelops the spirit of of who we are, what fly fishing is, and specifically what it means to Montana Fly Company. We want that to be a place where someone can go check out our products, see videos on how to use our products. We're really looking forward to linking a lot of video content through our partners, design team, all of our, you know, our signature tires, uh, how to tie knots, what fly lines to use in a given situation, how to cast in a given condition. We're a fly company. We don't even sell rods, but we love to fish, right? So we want people to see our website in the future. Of course, it's going to take years to develop the site into that sort of a space, but we want it to be a place where people can enjoy fly fishing uh, on a serious level with good information across the board but also to have a lot of fun with it. One of my favorite things to do is show bloopers. So I'm hoping that our website not only shows how people in the industry and, and people that are using our products, people that are developing our products, uh, use them in the right ways. I'm hoping to have a really fun place to show the use of products in accidental and, and wrong ways as well. So, you know, the idea, Dave, is that it should be a place to be able to go see MFC, see who we are, check out our products, but also use it as a resource to find and dive into other places and other aspects of fly fishing, you know, that, that they wouldn't find elsewhere. 
Nice, nice. Sounds like, yeah, a great resource. And this, when it's up, it'll be, will it still be uh, mfcfishing.com? Will that be the website? Yep, it'll be mfcfishing.com. That's right. Oh, perfect. So this will be great. So yeah, we'll, we'll put a link out to that. And then when it's live, people can take a look and maybe it'll be live. Again, we'll speak uh, like two or three years in advance. So somebody will be listening now, three years from now, and they will be able to click on it and see exactly what you just said to see what it looks like, which is pretty awesome. That'll be really fun. And then we can maybe do another podcast and go, uh, what happened with that website? Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll check uh, back know, with you. No doubt. The pie does seem like it's a little, it floated a little high in the sky right now to get to that end game that we discussed. But uh we should have we should have something you know up and rolling relatively short. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, well, and so and you have these flies, so that's obviously the big thing you do are all these flies. So if people are out there, would they just be going to? I mean, any shop. I mean, there's probably some partners you have, things like that. But you know, is that the best way? How would people track down to find out where you're at and how to find your stuff if they want to like reach out and you know pick up some of your flies? Yeah, no, that's great, and that's going to specifically. That will come through, you know, that website. We'll have a, a really cool interactive uh, a dealer locator that allows people to kind of interact, you know, geotag style with where they are and what dealers we, you know, we work with in those given areas. Okay. So on the flies, I mean, it's always interesting. We all have fly boxes. It seems like the fly is always the thing where, you know, okay, do we have the right fly? You know, how do we, you match it before matching the hatch etymology? There's a lot of questions but for you guys, are there some, you know, styles of flies, types of flies, names that you would, you think, or you hear a lot of, or like top sellers, or just give us a, you know, a little bit of a, a primer on what you have out there for flies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, MFC in its earlier days, as we spoke to its, you know, the company's history earlier, based on coming out of Missoula, was very centric to you know, standard and you could say in its day, innovative dry flies. Uh, foam dry flies were becoming more and more popular in those years. And, and now we think of foam as synonymous with a lot of dry flies, but it wasn't at that time. So yeah, innovative, but on the dry fly side. And as the, you know, over the years, of course, how we fish, how everyone's fishing, uh, the styles used, the flies used, those have evolved and, and we're changing, you know, with those, with those trends. So generally it's gone from, you know, a dry fly centric company to an assortment of more and more subsurface stuff, uh, really cool, you know, nymphs across the the hatch spectrum. And then also, as you had mentioned about the, you know, kind of Euro nymphing earlier in our conversation, um, that's kind of hit the US, you know, by storm over the last five or six, seven years, five, six years. And so we've we've definitely moved heavily uh, into the development of those of those flies. The fun part is always what we're missing and what the future is, like what's next. So we came out with this uh, with the Sparkle Minnow, and that's been one of our most successful patterns of the last 25 years. That's uh, that's the, uh, the, the cone-headed Sparkle Minnow, uh, also known as bling in a lot of circles, was kind of like the flashy fly that was, you know, three and a half inches long with a tungsten cone. It would dive, it would flash, it would kick and move, and and that's that's a fly that's synonymous, you know, with with like searching uh, w- with a streamer. And as we built out that streamer program, we've been lucky enough to you know to be able to work with some phenomenal streamer tires. Kelly Gallup is an unbelievable fly designer, unbelievable guy. I've known him for a long time, and he trusted us to take over his flies. Probably about 2016 would be my guess, and. Uh, we thought we could knock these flies out within 
within a year. And he said, no, Jake, it'll take three. <laughs> and it took every bit of three years. But that really propelled us to really move into that streamer space. So when we were able to take some of the cool streamers we already had and then work with Kelly on his entire assortment, it changed the game for us on, on how we tie streamers, how we control the quality of specifically, you know, hair heads on streamers, you know, mm, trimming hair yeah. on heads and working with articulation points in our flies. And Kelly's been phenomenal in working through those issues with us over the years. But uh, so we made a big push and said, well, if we're tying all of these flies, let's look to be the place to go if you want to, you know, if you want to streamer fish. And streamer fishing became really popular for a variety of reasons. But, you know, stripping flies and watching bigger fish chase flies is pretty fun, Dave. I don't care who you are, right? For sure. So we decided to make a push to be this, you know, if you're looking for trout streamers, you know, look to MFC. And, and we made a substantial push to do that. And again, I'm going to miss some names here, but we work with uh, Rich Strollis, who has some, you know, phenomenal street patterns and, and has for years. Uh, again, I feel bad because during this conversation, I'm going to miss a bunch of guys. But yeah. um, we've had a lot, a lot of fun with that. And we have uh, three or four new, you know, designers new to us that we're able to be working with now. And, and more we're talking to you to come over and do their streamers with us. So, you know, that was definitely a focus for the last, you know, seven, eight, nine years was to make that push in the streamer world. And our direction now, given I'm still on track with our question about kind of flies and flight yeah. and so forth, um, we're, we're really excited to play a little bit more and a little bit deeper in the smallmouth world. Mm, yeah. Right. This fish lives in like whatever, 48 or 49 of our states. You can catch them on a three weight. You can catch them on, an, you know, it with different different gear and in different areas and different sizes on a seven weight, and literally like spread across the country. They're hardy fish. They live in a in a very wide range of of temperature and environment, uh, which of course we love, just because we know that species is going to be around to to throw flies for. And we have some great partners throughout the southeast, the northeast, and the Midwest specifically, um, you know, in these flies and talk about a new a new horizon. They're not all radically different, but they're purpose built. I want this fly to do that. I want it to sit in the water like this, or I want it to kick its tail when the head moves like this. Um, you know, so it's really fun to use the techniques that, that our tires in Cambodia have, have been, you know, honing for years, but in a completely new world for us, which is, you know, that, that bass world. Nice. And the uh, the smallmouth, I think that's interesting because there's a few ways you can, you know, if you think about the website again, you, you have links listed like dry fly fishing, wet fly fishing, all the categories. And then you've got it by species too, right? You can say, okay, here's smallmouth. Here's, you know, some flies you need for smallmouth. I guess that's a thing. I mean, do you guys, as you look out, say the next year or five or so, are you thinking like we're going to have these categories of all these species and then we're going to be knocking those off the list, including maybe saltwater, things like that? Exactly, exactly. And because a lot of the tying techniques used in, well, let's call it anything that you strip, any fly that you make move in the water. So whether it's a streamer uh, moving into the bass, you know, the bass flies given they're, they're built to be stripped. And in the saltwater world, the tying techniques are very similar for a lot of these patterns. So we're, we're expanding in salt and that kind of uh, cold water and warm water bass, you know, at the same time. That happened this year. Uh, we're launching some new patterns in those realms as well as the next, you know, three to five. I think you'll see some focus from from MFC in those places. Uh, but to bring that back to the website, yeah, I think the sky is the limit. And to your point, yes, that is exactly what we're thinking. Um, not one year out, 
but maybe that three to five view is what it takes to actually get there. But yeah, let's look at let's look at it by species, uh, techniques for those species, and then kind of cross pollinating those techniques. So, you know, typically one person say has always fished topwater. One person's always fished subsurface. All of a sudden, you stop moving the subsurface fly, and you get bit. Maybe even more than you did when you were moving the fly, and then you're you know you're stripping your slider, and then all of a sudden you cut the belly off your slider and you strip it slower and you get bit again, maybe even more than you were before. So, you know, that idea of different techniques and cross pollinating those techniques from species to species, I think would be really, really fun information uh, for everyone interested in fly fishing that they would hopefully find on our site in the future. Yeah, I could see that. That would be really cool to have a since you have all the flies, yeah, you could have something like, um, yeah, you know, musky fishing. Okay, here's musky fishing. Here's the flies, and then here's the shops. You know, locally or you know, narrow in on where you are. Like you said, the geolocation. And like, okay, here's where I need to go to do the musky or the small. And we just had an episode of uh, Chad Johnson was on. I think he knows Kelly and the crew. He's another one of those streamer guys down out of like the White River, kind of more southern part. And yeah, he was talking about exactly what you're saying. I mean, his flies are specific to. He was describing how there's these people fishing for trout, like bait fishing, and they're hooking a lot of f- trout and like wounding them and they're, they're wounding off like wounded. And he was talking about how his flies are imitating that wounded trout, you know? So it's like very specific. Do you guys get down to the weeds that far on this stuff? We absolutely do. And then you got to make sure you have your life jacket on to get out of those weeds because you can live in them. And we know what's yeah. life, right? You get buried in those weeds and you can't get out of them. Um, yeah, Chad, I don't know Chad yet well personally. We do tie... Uh, Chad's flies now, and I haven't been able to get down and you know meet him myself. A couple of our guys on the team have. Well, he's got one. You mentioned one of them, or you mentioned Kelly Gap. So he told the story. We'll put a link in the show notes this one, but he's got one fly called the Big Johnson. <laughs> yes, he does. I'm not sure if that's in your lineup, but uh, that's you know, of course, Kelly Gallup helped to name that one. But apparently, you know, it's just one of those game changing flies. You know, it just works really well. But um, but yeah, again, I think the naming thing is. Well, how do you guys look at the naming thing? Is that something where it's a big part of your your fly uh, process? You know, yeah, it. Uh, there can be issues around fly names. Right? Yeah, politically correctness, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly, and we understand that completely. And there's there's two sides to that, right? Like, uh, yeah, you know, yes, you have some flies like that may be called, you know, the Big Johnson. A handful of flies from Kelly. Uh, you look at the name, and you can have a, a reaction to those. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of fun there in what comes up in conversation when you're fishing, when you're fishing that fly, when you're watching fish, uh, you know, chase that fly or eat that fly, right? Those emotions yeah. that come up when that happens. And oftentimes that's, you know, kind of how these names, these names pop out. I actually guided the gal that named some of Kelly's flies. That was, from- oh, really? I had no idea. And about midway through the day, she's telling me these stories about this guy, Kelly Gallup, that she'd fished with and how she named this fly the Sex Dungeon. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait. <laughs> you named that fly? She's like, yeah. Who do you think named it? I'm like, I thought Kelly named it. And I'm not sure if he would contest that. Right. We'll have to ask him. Yeah, that was, you, you should ask him. And, and those were, that was the conversation that came up in my boat. I mean, we're probably talking like, I don't even know, 2007, 8, 9, whatever year that would have been. Um, but hilarious, right? So the point is these fly names, uh, especially when they're a little bit off, uh, off piste, if you will, you know, often aren't even coming from the way, you know, coming out the way we thought they would have. 
or, and or do they mean what they meant? So we try to walk that line and be very careful, right? We don't want offense out there in the world uh, or anything that's truly something that's degrading, you know, towards anybody, but trying to also, you know, keep some of that fun alive uh, when that name comes out of someone's mouth at some point, they slap it on that fly. You know, we don't want to be too careful to where everything is so muted, where it's almost boring and you don't get a bit of laughter when someone says, hey, what's that fly called? This is Gall- This is Kelly's butt monkey. <laughs> is that actually a fly? Oh yeah, has been for years. Oh right. Oh, I didn't know about that. So there you go. Yeah, totally. Then feel free to scratch it if you need to. <laughs> uh, you know, that that is like you said, keeping it fresh, keeping it fun. We do a lot of fly names that are uh, kind of work more workhorse names, right? Very rudimentary names. This is what this fly is, and this is its color. And then we have we have some guys that really like to have some fun with the with the name. Yeah. What would be another, that one is pretty classic. What would be another one? Anything else from anybody that sticks out as a popular fly or a, or a name, especially like a name that just pops? Well, uh, yeah. And I'll go to one of our old uh, bestsellers, you know, that the company's ever had. Uh, that was uh, the Purple Haze. Oh, yeah. And that fly was named, that, that fly had to have been named back in the, I would imagine, early to mid 90s. Oh, right. Yeah. By Andy Carlson, still guiding fishing outside of Missoula. Oh, wow. Yeah. The purple haze is a, yeah, a massive, great, huge. Everybody knows that pattern. Yeah. No, totally. You can, you can buy them from other places, but they're not the same. That's for sure. Yeah. Is it, it's essentially, it's kind of like a, it's like a hair's, a purple hair's ear sort of thing. Yeah. It's, if you were to compare it to another fly, you'd say it's a parachute atoms. And years ago, Andy tied it with purple spanflex for a body. And I don't know why that works better than a, shiny floss in a purple color or purple thread or purple ice dubbing uh, but it doesn't and no matter how you try to tie that fly there's no thorax the, the material is a, it's a purple you know spandex rubber leg tied through the entire body if you put a thorax on it of dubbing it doesn't work the same if you try to use purple thread for the body they, they, they work they're fine but they don't work the same so that fly is all about that purple spandex body. And uh, year in and year out, it's in our top 10 list every single year. It is. And I was way off on the purple haze. I was thinking, here's yeah, but this is a, this is a parachute Adams type fly with a parachute. Yep, exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. And the purple haze is good. Um, and so the naming, I think one thing, and I've, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I think part of the naming is, you know, some of, you think of the comedy thing, because I've listened to some comedy, you know, podcasts out there. I've heard these guys talk about it, how... You know, like in the 80s, Eddie Murphy, you know, I don't know if you remember his stuff, but the guy had these like serious, it was funny, but it was stuff that you probably couldn't do now. Yeah. Just because it's so, and I think maybe there's some of that same stuff with fly naming, right? There's probably just some names you wouldn't do these days just because it's a different, you know, atmosphere and where there's more thoughts and, you know, like you said, diversity, inclusion, all that stuff. But no, it's, it's good. I think that um, it's hard to beat these names because once something resonates, it's just like the purple haze. Like it's just instantly, and I'm sure your sales go way up, right? When you get the right name. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, for sure. And, and as you know, we're let's use the purple haze as an example. That fly is not offending anyone unless there's someone that if there is any reference to the smoking of marijuana and they were by that. Okay. Right. Right. See, and I was thinking, I always think of Jimi Hendrix whenever I hear purple haze. Yeah, exactly. Right. And what was that purple haze? And, you know, at that time even, right. But it's really not offending anybody nowadays. And this is hilarious because my uh, my wife and I love to, to get involved in, in discussions about, 
you know, society, any aspect of, you know, societal issues. Uh, we, we enjoy those conversations, but, um, it'd be really interesting to hear this, uh, a follow-up to, to our conversation now, you know, 10 years from now and, and see how we feel about the, you know, our questions and answers. But the key is knowing that we're, we're definitely in a time where it's definitely more in front, right? Um, what's being said, is it okay to be said? What do the things mean? And what do they mean to certain groups of people, right? We try to be very, very careful there to make sure that we don't cross certain lines, right? There are certain things that maybe George Carlin or Eddie Murphy or well, whatever that old comedian was, you know, back in. Yeah. Robin Williams or any of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't remember who was, who, there was another guy from New York that was, that was very terse in the late early nineties, whoever that was. Right. Uh, th- there are lines that they crossed as comedians and said, Hey, I'm going to live with those consequences. Right. So we're not willing to bump up against too many of those lines. Uh, but as long as, as long as people know who we are, what, you know, what the industry's about, what these flies are about. I think the names are pretty fun, but I do want it to be noted. We, we are very careful to make sure that there are a lot of lines that we say those aren't worth crossing because it may be funny to you, but it's really not that funny, right? So you, you definitely hit those points, Dave. It's just not funny. No, it's not funny, right. How do you vet, like, how do you kind of vet, once you get a pattern from some of these, you know, some of the gurus or folks out there, you know, is it like a selling thing? If that pattern sells a certain amount, then you keep it going? Or how do you know which like becomes the purple haze, these flies that stick around? Or do you, are you always just mixing in new fly patterns testing? That, that's it. That's it. Uh, we, we were always mixing in new fly patterns. We try to call the, you know, kind of call the herd, you know, each year to around the tune of what we're bringing in. And then if we're bringing in outside of a given category, right, that category can just grow. So we, you know, if we bring in you know, 80 new patterns one year, we do try to make sure we're trimming the fat from the bottom end of, of our assortment to make room for them uh, and bandwidth for those. But, you know, you don't always know, right? If you have an existing fly with a really good track record that ends up kind of moving into your quiver, um, those are home runs. I mean, we know that these flies already work. We know they already sell and we'd love to work with a specific designer on those patterns. But other than that, yeah, it's instinctual. It's, it's experience uh, amongst the entire team. Right, we talk to the designer. We do talk to our our sales reps. These are guys that travel the country visiting fly shops, right? Showing our products um, because they're in front of a lot of people every year that are heavily involved directly in our space. And then we fish the flies, right? We talk to people that fish the flies. Have our guides that are on the water, you know, eighty to one hundred and eighty days. Uh, have have any of those guys fished these flies to you know put them on two rods a day for one hundred and twenty days and see you know, how it, how it works. So once we've vetted them to the best of our ability, and sometimes it's just like that fly looks killer. The profile's good. The flotation is good if it's a dry or if it's a, you know, a, a fly that needs to sink, right? What's its sink rate going to be? What are we trying to make this fly accomplish? Do we want it to be floating with neutral buoyancy as uh, some aspect of a hatch? Or do we want that fly to literally drop six feet in two seconds and stay there? So once in a while, with a lot of experience amongst the team, we say, yeah, that fly's never been fished and that specific fly is going to crush it. So we'll build them. We'll take a look once they get here from our factory. Then we'll spread them out to our sales team. We'll go out and fish them a little bit and say, now we need a tweak or a change or yes, that one fishes just like we thought it would. And at the end of the day, the uh, you know the anglers across uh, across the globe are the ones that tell us which ones we hit out of the park and which ones we didn't. That's right. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. 
Well, we're going to do the um, the quick uh, fly shop uh, shout out here to start to take us out of this uh, episode. But give us uh, anything else we missed on MSC. I know right now as we speak, the fly uh, website is under construction. But anything else we miss as far as, you know, the brand, the history, the flies, anything else before we start to take it out of here? No, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, probably 500 things, Dave. Yeah. Probably 500, 500. How many SKUs do you guys, how many patterns do you have? Just give us that number roughly. Do you know, have any idea how many, do you have like a thousand patterns or something? We have roughly 2,300 patterns spread across 6,000 SKUs. So, you know, once you include size range in there, uh, if you average three sizes per pattern, there are 6,000 SKUs. So we have just over 2,300 different patterns uh, with, with more to come. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. Good. Okay. Well, let's, let's do our Fly Shop Friday shout out. And we're going to, this is uh, presented by uh, Squall of Fishing. Uh, Squall of Fishing.com is, uh, I've been I've been wearing, uh, I don't know what you have for a technical hoodie, like a sun hoodie, but it's been something I pretty much wear all the time and been wearing. I'm not sure how they do it. They've got a little mix of wool in it. But shout out to Squalla. That's our presented by in this segment. But who for you, the Fly Shop, you guys have Fly Shops all around the country. Who's your local? Do you have a local Fly Shop or a company you want to give a shout out to here? We, we have a couple. I would love to do a very, very localized. We're in a small town, a town of about four, about 5,000 people now. It used to be smaller. Um, in Columbia Falls, Montana, I'd love to give a shout out to Hillary and Eben at Larry's Fly Shop. And at the same time, would love to give a shout out to Justin Lawrence and his team over at Lake Stream Fly Shop. They're both killing it in different ways. And we're glad to have them both uh, right in our backyard. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, put links to the show notes to those. Every chance we get, we try to, you know, I know the, like you said, the importance of the the local fly shops kind of keeping that going strong. So uh, we'll put that out there. And so as we get into this, I got a couple of quick little rapid fire to uh, to pick your brain on, then we'll take it out of here. Uh, this is uh, basically, you know, I want to just pick your brain on some easy ones. One would be, we talk fly patterns. So you're, you're a guide, um, you know, you hear about guide flies and things like that. Is there a pattern that is just like your go-to in the box? One pattern you always have there, no matter where you are. Trout fishing, I guess. Um if I had, and I preface this by by saying, I do fish quite a few of the of the much newer newer patterns, but if you put me on Earth by myself in a place I've never fished for a month, and I could only have three flies that were subsurface flies, I would never leave the house without a rubber legs, which is our plexi girdle bug, our girdle bugs, a zebra midge. And a prince nymph, the classics, right? We can talk new patterns in Euro style nymphing or, you know, double tungsten, whatever it might be. But, you know, let's remember the classic flies that work as good today as they ever have. I kind of forgot your question because I got so excited. No, that was it. You just nailed it. That's it. You gave us three. Yep, those are three, but those are only nymphs. And I can't pigeonhole myself nymphing because I, you know, prefer to fish a dry fly. Um, if I had to keep it, if I could have two dries that I would never be without in my personal fishing, what do I always have? I never go fishing with a dry fly without uh, black beetles, which is a is a very underserved category, Dave. If you're a beetle angler, I want you to try beetles um, from you know the first of July through the middle of October. The beetle is absolutely deadly. Uh, we have we have a few great beetles. Uh, there's there are a number of beetles on the market, but not a ton because they're not fished as much as they should be. I would never leave uh, the house to go fishing on a trout river without beetles. And beyond that, I just want to fish golden stones all the time. So 
to throw that in there as well. There you go. Golden stones, love the stone. That's perfect. Okay. And we talked indicators a little bit on that. Um, when you are nymph fishing, are you still using indicators? What would be the indicator you would use? Are you more into the Euro stuff now? No, I'm, uh, while nymphing, I cannot unlock myself from the airlock indicator. You know, they cast the way that cap twists onto my leader. There's, there's, I've fished them all. Um, the vast majority, I can't get away from the airlock myself. Perfect. That's awesome. And, and what about your, um, automobile? So you, I've been watching this. It's funny. Henry Ford, I, I've kind of been to these documentaries and stuff, but you got this car. You can only, any car, doesn't matter. Whatever car, money is no object. What's your ultimate car? Do you have it now or what would it be? Hell yeah, I have it now, Dave. You do? <laughs> you, you got it. Or is that that big of a deal? I'm always curious, like maybe cars aren't that big of a deal for some people. No, it's a great one, you know, because cars are always fun. And I, you know, really cars are like boats. Um, you can't do it all with one, right? You have to have multiple. So I have a plastic boat that I can drag through the woods. I have a row skiff, the classic skiff, by the way, the best rowing boat in the world. You know, for my standard, you know, uh, drift boat fishing, I have my whitewater raft, which happens to be a super, uh, a super puma, which is a, you know, great, great fishing raft that can also handle, you know, heavy, heavy water. And then I have the, the jet boat and that's a, been a great family boat as well. So I have a couple of kids now, beautiful little kids and everyone loves, my wife is my fishing partner, right? So if I'm fishing, I prefer and want to be fishing with her and we've been fishing together for, for years. So we do have the jet boat, we got the raft, we got the drift boat and we have the little drag it through the woods and over the rocks boat. And I think cars are the same way, but if I had to have one do all vehicle, it would be, well, you can't buy it. It would be six doors and a 10 foot bed. I don't think they make pickup trucks long enough. Oh, right. Yeah. Big bed. That's right. I want, you know, they have short beds now because they're easier to park. Well, I don't want to live in a place where I have to worry about parking too much. Uh, so I would prefer a 10 foot bed, but I have to settle for an eight foot bed. I think six doors would be awesome because then you could put everybody in it super comfortably with a lot of leg room. Uh, they don't have that. So I, uh, I'm more than happy with uh, with my truck, which is the F-350, four-door, yep. eight-foot bed, and let's go ahead and keep the diesel. There you go. Yeah, so you got the big, that's awesome. So you got the big Ford. Perfect, perfect uh, segue because after hearing the history, I'm not sure if you know the history of Ford, but it's interesting. He's definitely a unique uh, person. But yeah, I mean, it's a, I think that's it right there. Like there's all sorts of room for improvement. So even with your great Ford, uh, six doors, we'll, we'll pass this on to Ford when we talk to him and see if they can put that together. Yeah. Let, let's see how long they can make that bad boy and tell him you have at least one person that is guaranteed bought. Exactly. Okay. And and the final one is on a tip. So we're going to be fishing. Like I said, we got multiple trips. We cut a couple of big ones. One's going to be on the South Fork and we're going to be floating it. Um, what would be your tip for us? We're on the river. Have you fished a South Fork or do you fish both South Fork and Henry's Fork? Yes, I would be an extremely poor person to ask about the South Fork. Um, right, the, the the group I worked with on the outfitting side for years, we did not guide on the South Fork River as much as I would have loved to have learned that fishery. Um, just an ungodly fish population, a phenomenal diversification of species over there between the brown trout, the cutthroat, the rainbow trout, the, the density of fish. Um, awesome, awesome fishery. I just don't know it well at all. I'm more of a, you know, kind of a Ennis Madison down through the Henry's Fork guy. Perfect. So, so what would be one, would you have from your guide days, one tip for somebody that's heading out to their, that area for the first time, whether they're fishing lakes or, or rivers? Number one, and by far the most important, Dave, if you're going to go fish that region or any region for that matter, and you're going to take a local guide, listen to them. 
just listen, absorb what they're telling you, mimic what they do, uh, and literally, you know, ab- absorb that information. Um, you're not paying them just to drive you to the ramp, right? And I know it's not you, it's anyone listening. Uh, you know, you're paying them for knowledge. When I take a guide, specifically saltwater fishing is, is when I'm able to, you know, to, to really be guided. I'm watching and listening to everything that they do and say and putting that in that little data bank in the back of your mind. Because even if you don't do it that way at home or you do it differently on your river or you quote unquote, when I was fishing this other river, we did this. That's all great. That's knowledge in your database. But this person is going to give you new knowledge to add to that database from their locale. Um, I think that's by far the most important tip. The other tip I give everybody, if your fishing dries, uh, if they're not eating it, keep moving, cover new water. If you're fishing nymphs, if you're catching bottom and no fish, go shallower. If you're catching fish, don't change anything. And if you're not catching fish and not catching bottom, go deep. Perfect. Awesome. All right, Jake, we'll leave it there and we'll send everybody out to uh, mfcfishing.com if they have questions. And uh, yeah, this has been great, man. I appreciate you uh, sharing the, you know, shedding the light on MFC. I love what you guys have going and uh, excited to keep working with you on uh, new events as we move forward. Well, I appreciate it, Dave. It's been a lot of fun. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.